What is up? Welcome back to Modern Day Marketer. I'm your host, Brett McGrath. I am ready to share this episode with you. I love meeting other marketers out there who are subject matter experts in specific discipline. It is an opportunity for us to learn, especially on topics that there is a ton of uncertainty about. And that is what we're doing today. I got Dan from Product Tranquility. He is an expert on pricing and packaging. I think this is a topic that we all want to learn more about. So that is what we're doing here on Modern Day Marketer, bringing in the experts to share their knowledge. If you like what I'm doing over here, follow, subscribe, do all the things. Hopefully you saw the news out there last week about our category pages launch powered by G2. We're fired up about that. If you're liking the show, tell a marketing friend. Without further ado, let's kick it to the conversation. What is up? Welcome back to Modern Day Marketer. Excited about this conversation. Today, we're going to be talking about how to build the right pricing and packaging for your product. I have someone who I'd consider just based on meeting him an expert in this field. I'm joined by Dan Belkowski, who's the principal consultant at Product Tranquility. We're going to be diving into this topic headfirst. I know I'm going to learn something. I Hopefully you are too. But Dan, welcome. How are you? Doing well, Brett. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited for our conversation. Totally. I'm excited about this one too. And maybe before we jump into it, I always like to give our guests a opportunity to to plug their place of work and what you all are responsible for. So maybe tell a little bit about the audience, a little bit about Product Tranquility and what you all do. Yeah, absolutely. So Product Tranquility is a consultancy based down in Austin, Texas. We help high volume B2B SaaS CEOs define pricing and packaging for new products. It lines up with what we're going to be talking about today. So that that's great. Maybe like talk about your, your background going into this. So I think uh, you know pricing and packaging is is typically something that when it comes up in organizations, it's like kind of a you know different departments have conversations trying to figure it out. No one really knows what they're up to. No one really knows has confidence when they do it. They just kind of put something out there and hopefully hope it works and learn a lot along the way. So maybe like share a little bit about your background and how you got into this. Yeah, well, you know, in kindergarten, I was really interested in the prices on juice boxes. Uh, just kidding. Uh, go back that far. Uh, so I spent my entire career in technology space. I started as an engineer building products. I've been in engineering management, product management, product strategy. I've been off my own doing this thing for about the last three years. When I was building products, I found the world of engineering fascinating, but I quickly found myself more interested by how the products we were creating were creating value for customers and dollars and cents for business than I was about the actual code. So that led me into pursuing more of a product management track in my career. I went and got my MBA to flesh out the foundational frameworks that that education like that entails. Got introduced to a lot of the core concepts around pricing at Kellogg. And it was, I found out after the fact was quite lucky. It was one of the few schools that actually has pricing courses. Uh, even there, uh, you have different lenses of, of pricing, whether you're dealing with fast moving consumer packaged goods or you're doing pricing for airlines. So the world of, of software pricing is quite unique. I had my first set of challenges working that actually during my MBA internship, I was working for a very successful Silicon Valley startup and the company was selling apps, but they went to they went to market through four major go-to-market partners. And one of those go-to-market partners was trying to position themselves as the low-cost leader in, in the space. And 
they demanded all their partners create freemium versions of their products. And so they had to do that for the one partner. So the question sitting on the desk of the CEO at the time when I showed up was, we got to do this engineering work to create a freemium version for one, should we do it for all? So among several other projects that summer, I dove into heart of freemium, found out how it works, how it doesn't. It mostly doesn't. So TLDR, we might get into it more later. Uh, I generally steer people away from premium, but that was sort of my first foray into the pricing world. And then I spent you know a good amount of my time, probably the last 12 years in product management, product strategy world, helping building products mostly. And even though product management traditionally doesn't own pricing, just given the idiosyncrasies of my experience and you kind of looking around the building, anyone else who had any idea what was going on, I, I had sort of the most experience. So I often got roped into those conversations and led some of those initiatives. So through you know, some accidental set of experience, as well as training, uh, realized I had a little bit of a knack for this and uh, went off my own about three years ago. And that's now all I do is help companies with pricing and packaging. I would imagine there's a lot of work because um, you know just in, in being a kind of a, a, an operator in uh, the startup space for quite some time, I'm not sure I've ever worked in a place where it's like somebody came in and was like, you know what, pricing, packaging, I got this out of the gates. This is how we're going to do it. It's always, There's a lot of gray area and a little to no expertise. And I think we're all creating products to you know, present value and then have them priced in a way where people buy and feel like there's, you know, they're getting benefit and then we're getting benefit on the other side. And I know you wrote an article about this. So, and I think it's an interesting topic, but would love for you to riff on a little bit, but like the the idea of value with pricing and like, what are there different ways that we should all be thinking about it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a couple of foundational things when we talk about value. So I really believe that intelligent price management follows from intelligent value management. And you really can't dive into the pricing world unless you really understand the value you're providing to customers. And there's really two sources of inspiration that I draw on quite heavily in my work in discussing value. So one is the theory of jobs to be done, and the other is the value cascade. So jobs to be done was created, has many fathers, I didn't invent it, uh, but is Originally, you might trace it all the way back to Theodore Ted Levitt, who was a famous marketing professor at Harvard Business School. He wrote a, a great article called Marketing Myopia, and he talks about you know, customers don't want a quarter-inch drill. They want a quarter-inch hole. And that concept was sort of seeded probably 50 years ago, built upon by the likes of Clayton Christensen, another famous Harvard Business School professor who was found famous for disruption theory in the innovator's dilemma. He had a lot to do with establishing the practice of jobs to be done. Tony Ulwick, who wrote a great book called What Customers Want. But that really helps us understand that there's really three kind of core value drivers that exist. There's functional or economic value drivers. So these are things that create an economic or functional benefit for our customers. There's emotional value drivers. These are ways that products help change the way we feel, a sense of confidence, peace of mind, et cetera. And then finally, there's uh, social drivers or social jobs. You can imagine if you're in a nonprofit or a government institution and you're fighting for equal rights or climate change, those type of broad-based things add value to the world, but they're not necessarily for, for us personally. Humans are inherently social creatures. And so that's one of the primary ways I look at value. And then value cascade comes from a gentleman named Tom Nagel, who wrote 
a seminal book on pricing called The Strategy and Tactics of Pricing. And he introduced this concept of the value cascade that has four parts. So we think about the first part being uh, use value. So these are all of the benefits that customers might accrue from using your product. Economists might refer to this as utility. So it would encapsulate all of the type of benefits that we talked about from uh, the jobs to be done. But use value or, or pure utility is not necessarily directly relevant to the pricing exercise because all value is relative. There's no internal value meter that we use to judge the absolute value of a product. We always judge value in relation to other opportunities or other uh, options that we might consume. And so then the next step of the value cascade is understanding exchange value. And I just wrote a, a very long uh, detailed post on exchange value, also sometimes termed uh, economic value, where we need to understand, okay, what are our customers next best competitive alternatives? What would they use if we didn't exist? And then how are we positively and negatively differentiated from that to understand the overall economic value that we provide of our solution in reference to the other market alternatives? But we still haven't gotten to pricing because in between economic value and willingness to pay is this concept of perceived value. And so for the marketers on the in the audience, they'll really understand that you know, customers only value your product to the extent that they're well-informed about your offering, the other alternatives in the market, your differentiating benefits of, of your offering. Humans, uh, consumers are not rational, omniscient buyers. They don't know every detail about every single product. And so it's our job uh, as marketers to help inform customers of what are the relevant differentiators? How is our offering better than others? And how do we present a product in a way that's compelling for a particular customer segment that can influence the value that's in the customer's mind? And ultimately that leads to the final aspect of the value cascade, which is willingness to pay. So oftentimes, you know, I'll get asked by clients, hey, could you just go run a survey? And it's like, well, I can, it's possible. It's in my wheelhouse, we could do that. Um, but if you don't understand everything that's upstream, you could run two willingness to pay surveys and describe the product slightly differently or, or send it to two different groups of customers in different segments that value different value drivers that your product will help them achieve. And you're going to get entirely different answers. So we really have to understand that entire pathway in order to understand the data that we're getting back from the market. I'm ready to take the uh, the course here. Uh, sign me up. I feel like I just went to class hearing all of that. That's amazing. One thing I just want to, I'm, I'm interested in because my ears perked up when you said you started talking about marketers and differentiation and talking about like, you know, the fe features and it led me down the, the the path of thinking about just like the overall like brand and brand impact. Like I know it's like uh, it's, it's really hard to like quantify and qualify like the significance of a good brand, but we all know it when we see it, like in maybe in clients that you're working with, like how much are they able to like, if they have an established brand, if they're building content, if they're doing all the right things to win hearts and minds, how much are they able to lean into that in order to uh, kind of pull different levers on their the price and packaging of of their product? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I'll, I'll say off the bat, I'm not a branding expert. Uh, so you might talk to a branding expert who gives you a different answer. I'll give you my perspective. So I mostly deal with B2B SaaS companies. And there's two relevant marketing concepts 
that I think fall into your domain of your question. So one is brand and then the other is positioning. Mm. It's been my experience that both are relevant for B2B and B2C, but their relative importance differs between the two. So in consumer, brand is all powerful. So you think about brands like Coca-Cola or Southwest Airlines or Hilton Hotels, right? The brand is incredibly powerful. Whereas when you get to B2B, it tends to be more your positioning. And your positioning is helping customers frame the context that helps them understand your differentiated value. And so in B2B, what I really, B2B pricing specifically, I really help customers mostly focusing on their price positioning and their overall positioning. So when we think about positioning in the concept of pricing, we use a tool called a price value map. So at any point, a customer is always making a trade-off of value versus price. And you can imagine a, a landscape, if you will, if I have a two axes, it's, unfortunately, it's not a visual medium. So uh, I'll try to make it as easy to follow for your audience as possible. But if I, if I map out on two axes, one is perceived value, the other is perceived price, I might have multiple players in the market occupying different components of that map. So I'll have like a low cost player, you know, an average or a market player, maybe a premium player, and then a luxury player. So if I take the automobile market, for example, your Toyota Corolla might be your low cost, no frills entry point. You know, then you have your Toyota Camry, sort of your average market player. When I get into premium, I'm t- you're talking about your BMW, Mercedes, Tesla, uh, Model S. Then I get into my luxury, your Bugattis, your Ferraris, your Lamborghinis, right? And so understanding where you fall on that price to value trade-off is tends to be much more important. Um, there is a brand component, but it tends to be a little bit more muted in the B2B space. I love it. One thing I want to talk about, because I feel like so much, and especially in B2B specifically, when people are doing these podcasts on these topics, they talk about them all in like generalities, knowing that on the other side of this, there are people who work in companies of all different shapes and sizes. So I'm curious to know from you, like how, how do these pricing and packaging conversations and the implementation of it, how does it vary based on the size and scale or where your company is at in their life cycle? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think you know, one of the things I think about when it comes to you know, any the spectrum of a startup to a enterprise firm is their level of care about periods in the future. So an enterprise is at a point where it can plan long-term, where it can have a five-year, a 10-year. I even worked for a company that had a hundred-year plan, right? If you're a startup, you're worried about making payroll next week or next quarter, right? And so that changes your mindset on how you're pricing because the ultimate guide of any effective price is it maximizes long-term profitability. The question though is, put that long-term in any different context, long-term for that startup might be, we got to make payroll and be around next quarter or next year. Enterprise is saying, All right, we're going to make these investments uh, in order to you know, capture this market in, in five years, uh, right? Those are two different definitions of, of long-term. The other, I think the other thing that happens, right, is just in terms of the complexity and the evolution. So first of all, when you have a startup, there's no one except the founders to do the pricing. Right, and you have one product, or maybe a, a part of a product. You've got an MVP. Pricing at that point is not the most important thing. I recommend people charge something. Right, make sure that you can keep the lights on, that your unit economics makes sense. But most of the VC world is 
understands you're going to be unprofitable for a long period of time. As you grow, that changes to the point where if you're at an enterprise, you now are what you might call a, a rent seeker, where you're now trying to optimize every sort of dollar and cent, right? You, you're Apple and you're trying to eke out an extra 0.5% of margin uh, for next year, right? To, to juice your earnings, right? Your exercise on a pricing strategy is going to be quite different than the startup that's just trying to you know make sure that they don't go out of business. Uh, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. There's just where those companies are in the uh, market position in the in the life cycle of their company. Uh, and then also as you scale, you're going to have different things like are we you know single country based, multi-country based, right? As soon as you go international, there are complexities that happen there. You're going to have more people involved. Like I guess mentioned if you're startup, it's only the founders because there's no one else to do it. And then as you grow, you know, generally I recommend product marketing own uh, pricing in a, in a technology company. But then at some, some point you may have a full-fledged price manager, director of pricing or a pricing team. Um, although even that's, that's fairly rare. I, I don't see that. I think the best data I saw was from OpenView. I think they said about 50% of companies at IPO stage, which I think they said about hundred million in revenue had official pricing teams, right? So usually first pricing person around the 200 million revenue mark, right? So at each of those points, you've got multiple products, single product to multi-product, you know, one or more people now involved in the process, uh, potentially multiple countries involved in the process. So, so changes complexity on that, those dimensions. So maybe thinking about um, starting at like, you know, year one of startup land, you see a lot of founder led sales. Um, you're trying to figure out your ICP. You find people who actually will pay you for your thing. And maybe you flash forward a, a year from that and you look at uh, what you're charging everyone and it varies across the board. And you look at, you know, the customer list and you're like, you know what, like, these 10, this is the right fit. These five, not so much. Like, I can't believe that they're even paying us for our, this thing right now. And then, you know, you graduate and you get more sophisticated and you start focusing in on your ICP. And, you know, you, then you have to start thinking about, you know, pricing based on, you know, customer segmentation. Like, how, how do you think about like that shift from like just trying to figure it out, trying to learn from our customers, trying to figure out how much people will pay us to like, when is the mode where you like finally get and you're like, okay, now this is this is time that we kind of need to take this a little more seriously and put some definition around kind of how we're thinking about pricing? Well, it's going to be involved in the conversation from day one. I mean, you have to, if you're going to sell anything, right, you've got to attach a price to it. So, you know, the question is, what's the level of rigor and what are the effects that you're trying to mitigate or, you know, KPIs you're trying to accelerate? Normally, what I think of is, you know, until you're sort of at that 10 million ARR mark, you know, pricing is probably not your most important focus. You've really got to figure out, hey, can we actually create value? Do people value this thing? Do we have, I hate the term product market fit, but I'll use it because it's handy at this point. You know, do we have product market fit? Uh, you know, can we build an actual business around this thing? But, you know, it's normally at that sort of $10 million point where a couple of different things happen. Potentially you start to outgrow your initial target customer segment uh, where the, you know, say the founders are involved in founder-led sales originally, but at 10 million, now you've got you know, sales teams or marketing teams who are running your demand generation uh, and uh, revenue capture engine. And so it can be 
unclear that that transition has happened because the founders are no longer in the day to day. They're busy pitching investors. They're you know trying to manage an entire organization, and they're not as close to the customer at that point. I will say that there's no perfect answer to this because you know we would never take our product, especially in the SaaS world, and say it's done. We're good. Hands off. Uh, so you know the fact that is you never think of your pricing that way either because you're always changing the value of your product. Your competitors are changing your value of new competitors coming in. You have other structural breaks that happen in the marketplace. Like now we've got, you know, eight and a half percent inflation is the latest print. And so those type of things are always changing. You're always potentially acquiring new customers, building a new product, building new functionality that might be an add-on. Um, so saying at some point, oh, we just have this handled uh, is a little bit of a, uh, I think, a dream state. I, you know, baby wish it was that case, but uh, it, it tends not to be. You said something that I have to go back to and ask because I'm sure people heard you say it and they were listening. They're like, what's his beef with that? Talk, talk to me about what, why you don't like the term product market fit. What's, what's, what's your conflict with it? Yeah. Product market fit, as best I could tell, was a term invented by VCs to give them another way to, to say no to, to investing in startups. As an operator, product market fit is incredibly annoying because there's no agreement on how to measure it, what it means, and it's a rear-looking indicator. So if you're running a business, like the last thing you want to be looking at is your revenue. Like revenue tells you what happened. You know, you're not driving looking in the rearview mirror and you don't want to be running your business that way. And product market fit is rear rear looking. And so it doesn't tell you if someone says you don't have it, you're like, great. So what do we do? So as an operator, it's almost entirely useless. I'm I'm sold on that. I, I that'll be a sound bite we'll have to put out there because that, that resonates <laughs> certainly with me. Um Let's talk about packaging. I think uh, we hear it all the time. I've been in so many meetings where people are talking about packaging where in, in the SaaS, B2B SaaS space, where it, oftentimes I hear these conversations and I'm like, are they talking about packaging? Are they thinking about it the same way another indiv- this other individual in this meeting is thinking about it? And I feel like there's just a lot of confusion in general. So uh, maybe clear it up for us, provide some clarity ar- around w- what we should be talking about when we're talking about packaging? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I work on pricing and packaging and everyone gets very enamored with the first part and just, I think their eyes glaze over on the second because they just don't understand what it entails or it's a relative level of importance. When it comes to SaaS pricing, most executives think that what you charge will determine success. In fact, who and how you charge determines success and packaging talks directly to the how we charge. The way I think of packaging is in four components. So you have your price metric. So this is the unit of value that we charge customers for. This could be seats, data transferred, number of API calls, any number of things, right? It's some uh, potential scaling metric that we'd use to match the value we provide to the size of the account. Second would be your pricing model or your monetization model. So this would be something like a subscription, perpetual transaction, pay-as-you-go, utility billing model like your electricity company uses, or it could be an auction pricing model like Google or Facebook uses for their ad inventory. The third element of packaging would be your offer configurations, also sometimes called your bundles. So offer configurations are how do we present our set of capabilities in a way that's easily consumable for consumers and easy for our go-to-market teams to explain. 
So usually how we see this manifest in SaaS is something like a good, better, best in terms of uh, those type of tiers. Also, you know, how do we think about our add-ons, right? So we're going to use different offer configurations to capture the opportunity from different customer segments, right? And so that's an incredibly important part of, of the packaging exercise. And then finally, it would be price fences. So price fences are usually in terms of identity, time, and volume. So identity would be if I go to ride the bus today, I'm going to pay one price, but a senior citizen or a student is going to pay another price, right? They're going to have an identity-based discount. Uh, you know, some companies might have discounts for veterans or you know, AARP members, whatever it might be, right? Based upon some identity characteristic, there could be a time-based price fence. So when I think about this, it's you know, if I call most enterprise software companies. On the first day of the quarter, I'm going to get offered a very different discount than if I call them at 11.50 p.m. on the last day of the quarter. So that could be a time-based price fence. Uh, the other would be volume. So before we were talking about price metrics, if I charging by seats, for example, the first seat I buy on a unit basis is going to cost more than the thousandth seat I buy, right? But I can't I can't buy the thousandth seat off the bat, right? I have to buy every seat up to the thousandth seat. Um, and so then we're giving discounts based upon or uh, or have a price fence based upon on volume. So those are the four elements of packaging, your price metric, your pricing model, your offer configurations, and your price fences. And those elements are significantly more important than your price level. And they're the hardest to change. They often require a lot of work in your engineering to create the entitlement logic that you know, your, your product needs to enforce. You need to have that embedded in your subscription management systems, into your general ledger systems, into your uh, Salesforce quoting systems. Uh, and then you know the price level, if we have an enterprise or you know, a B2B deal, price level, I, I mean, I have a list price, but there's discounting that can get me to the right price on an individualized basis. And a number is, is very easy to update in a subscription management system database versus you know, changing all the other elements I just talked about. So we've talked about pricing, we've talked about packaging, um, I've worked at many different businesses where the ownership of these functions have been together, separate, been in sales, been in product, been in product marketing. It's varied across the board. Who do you think is responsible internally to for thinking about pricing and packaging and bringing, helping bring it to life? Yeah, it's all over the place. I I agree because this is a bane of of my existence for my firm because I'm uh, dealing with different stakeholders all the time. Pricing is painfully cross-functional sometimes. Uh, but you know, if I had to wave my magic wand and have the world be in my ideal image, I would suggest product marketing owns it. The reason is is because I view pricing as a pricing and positioning are marketing functions, and. PMM usually owns the company's positioning. They're also in a good place in the organization where they understand the competitive environment. They understand the customers at a deep level to insights of, of what drives value, right? They have to if they want to write compelling messaging and all the other activities that go with, with demand generation. And they're at a point in the organization or place in the organization where they understand the strategic objectives of the business. So I think all those things come together really well. The long-term incentives are really aligned. I could make a similar argument for product. And like I mentioned in my intro, I did own some pricing in my product roles, but the problem, the main problem with product owning it is just, it's like having the CEO own it. There's way too many demands. And so it just does not give the rigor because the chief product officer has got you know, a million things on their plate. And so it just kind of falls off the off the side. Um, I generally recommend, you know, we have a you know a pricing council, a pricing committee 
And I know like, hey, let's not get anything done. Let's form a committee. Uh, but the problem is, is that it is highly cross-functional and pricing is not at the maturity level of product management. So if you imagine the, the role of product management is to understand all of the internal stakeholders, including the stakeholder, the, the customer as a stakeholder, and balancing them, understanding all the trade-offs and moving the organization forward. So we've put that responsibility in one person. Most companies have not thought that way about pricing. So until we get to that magical place where we have a pricing leader that is the equivalent of a product manager that can move the pricing conversation forward on their own, having a pricing council, you bring together all the executive stakeholder leaders, sales, customer success, finance, CEO, a product to move that forward, but have giving them decision authority and building a process around that person so that we can understand how decisions are going to be made on a in a way that we can leverage that cool, calm, rational mind when we're not just faced with, oh my God, we got this enterprise customer and they want a big discount and the deal's on the line. Like now we have to make a decision and there's all this pressure. It's like, no, we're gonna, we're gonna abstract that. We're gonna create a process and, and a way that we think about pricing before we're in those situations that we've all agreed to and aligned to. So when this had happened, we have uh, the angels of our better nature prevent us from making those uh, rash emotional mistakes. No doubt about it. And I have to like, maybe to take it one step further, because now you've got my curiosity peaked and maybe just based on your work with some of your clients, you can, you have, you've got some good feedback here, but I, you've done all this work, you know, however you've done it through product marketing, through a committee, whatever, but you reach a point where you feel really good about your pricing and packaging based on data and everything else we've talked about here. What, what is the, best way or recommended path that you have seen be most successful in regards to like rolling it out internally, like making sure that the sales team, other the marketing team, other teams are aware and not only aware, but are adopting kind of the, the new pricing and packaging when they're going to market in their roles. Yeah. So I think, you know, you're talking about, you know, transformation, in a way, right? Yep. And transformation work is hard in any firm, um, and it gets more complex the larger the organization gets. So, making sure those internal stakeholders are bought in along the way, I think having a again something like a pricing council can help with some amount of regular meetings and cadence and established process, so that the teams, at least at the leadership level, all know what actions are being taken, when the next updates, you know, what are we going to learn in the next round, right? So imagine your pricing council meets quarterly, for example. I now have a sense of, okay, what are the problems on the table? Where are the research questions that we have to go answer? And then as we get those answers back, okay, what does this mean? How do we refine our hypotheses? When it comes to rolling things out, yeah, I mean, obviously you want to be able to for anything we've been talking about, whether that's positioning, segmentation, uh, pricing change, you want to make sure that your go-to-market teams, whether that's marketing, customer success, sales, we could come up with the fanciest strategy in a boardroom and then take it to the frontline people and they can't explain it, right? Or they can't, they're, or they're, or they're going to resist because they're like, I can't sell that to people. So we have to work with them on that as a up front to understand, okay, there's going to be iteration. We're going to have to test this. And then, you know, when you're talking about final rollout, like there, you can't really, I generally steer people away from AB testing pricing in the standard way that most people talk about it because you know, people are like, oh, we'll just, you know, change our pricing page, you know, 
And that doesn't work for a whole set of reasons in B2B. Uh, one, it is not f- transparent or consistent, which is two elements of really effective pricing. Um, you can imagine in a extended sales process like B2B, imagine you're my boss and you asked me to go evaluate a CRM product, for example, and I go do some research and I come back and I say, hey, Brett, I looked at all the candidates. I think it's down to these two. This is what they cost. This is what they do. And then you're like, sounds good, Dan. You swivel in your chair and you open up their pricing page and you see something entirely different. One, you may think different of me, which causes a problem. Two, you probably think different of that company because you're like, what, what the heck is going on here? There's just functionally, you usually can't get enough traffic to a pricing page to get any sort of consistency. So generally don't recommend that. You can do some testing around like, do we display like the most expensive package first or the least expensive, right? Do we highlight certain packages that you know are you know the most po- quote unquote most popular, right? You could do some of those things, but you know when you're finally rolling it out, you know, doing targeted rollouts can be helpful, right? And that can help build trust in those organizations where okay, you know if you're international, right? Hey, we're gonna roll this out in just North America, or we're just gonna roll this out with you know our our lowest end customers, right? And we're going to see the reaction and then we're going to we're going to move forward from there. And I've been in this spot before with pricing changes and inevitably people talk to people. <laughs> if they know that they're using your product, they're going to ask their friends, how much are you paying? Inevitably. And that's hard to backtrack, especially on the CS side. You said something earlier and I think it's such a hot topic and there are so many takes on it and I want to hear yours, but talk to me about freemium and why you don't think freemium is effective. Yeah. Oh, freemium. (laughs) Generally, any argument someone makes for freemium is better suited with a free trial, a 14 to 30 day free trial, almost across the board. Both freemium and free trial rely on what economists would call software as an experience good, which means our perceived value, we talked about before at the value cascade, it changes as I actually use the product, right? And it's not just software. You could think, imagine you go out to a fancy dinner, right? Your perception of the value of the meal changes as you experience it. So a free trial is a good thing. The nice thing about a free trial is there's a designated decision point that makes very clear for your entire go-to-market team, this person is a prospect or they're not. And you lose that when you go to freemium. A freemium, you this person drags out forever, and there's no set point at which our sales and marketing activities are set to stop. Why is that a problem? Best in class freemium companies convert one to three percent of those users to paid. One, that means you need a massive TAM in order to make freemium work. If your TAM is 10,000 possible accounts in the world, like you're never going to get enough traffic with a freemium to make it work. Second, moving someone from free to paid from $0 to one cent is an infinite increase in price. We call this the penny gap. That amount of activation energy it takes to move someone over the penny gap is just about the same as it takes to recruit a net new prospect who's never heard of your company from scratch. So- the mirage that companies run into, look, I, I all my hearts go out to all our hardworking CMOs and growth marketers out there. It is hard to acquire new customers. I get that. The mirage that exists is what you're going to end up having is about 95% of your users are on the free side, and then you got about 5% paid customers, something in that order. Your CMO or growth teams are going to look at that and be like, 
well, look, if we just tried a little harder, if we just built some features, if we just changed our onboarding a little bit, we could move these customers over. And it's a lie. It's a lie. Don't believe it. And so much energy is spent trying to move these customers over or these users over who will never move. One aggravating factor to that is because these users are often very different from your ICP. Like I've worked with companies before where they're B2B software companies. They have a freemium offering. They're selling to other businesses. And then you go to see who's using the free version of the product and it's consumers using it for their family. right? And so you run the the very high risk of this 95% of your users dumping feedback into your organization, whether that's your... Oh, God forbid you give these people support. Uh, you know, you have sales trying to reach out to them, trying to trying to move them or marketing, but your product team is getting inundated with feature requests from a bunch of people who are not like the rest of your ICP. So it confuses your product roadmap. It burns customer acquisition uh, costs on the on the sales and marketing side, trying to convert people who never convert. Uh, it's just a mess. It's just a mess. Um, there are very specific situations where it will work. So for example, I think Slack is well-suited to have a freemium model because the value of the product is that everyone shows up at once. There's nothing worse than a party I show up to and there's no one else there. Slack has that problem. They've got a cold start issue, very similar to a marketplace business model where I need both. I need everyone there in order for the product to show value. And so the best way to do that is to have it free. And then like, we're not even going to look at those people or treat them as prospects until they get to a certain amount of usage. Uh, the other situation I've seen that's that makes sense is if you have like a developer-focused product where say I'm an engineer, I, Stripe might be an example. I don't know if Stripe works this way, but I'll use it as an example where I need to be able to use that product in staging or dev for six, 12 months while I get the code working around it. And it doesn't make sense to have a sales guy extending free trial keys the whole time, but I have a version that is limited. It'll never work in production. In that case, it sometimes makes sense to have a, have a freemium offering. Um, and then the other I see is where like there's these uh, companies that are are built off of like open source software. And so they just need to have a free version at their base because they they literally are sitting right... like They have the same exact product in the open source world that they're competing with. And so it's not necessarily a pricing strategy. It's just a reality of, hey, the exact same product you get for free already. So we'll just have... I don't know, we'll add our branding to it and, and have a free version. If you're working on a freemium product right now and it feels like you're pushing a boulder up a mountain... <laughs> You might have heard something there that resonates. Um, this has been fun. I want to close it out with this. Um, and a question, I think, just in these topics that I always like to seek from the subject matter expert would be, you know, with pricing and packaging, like, I would imagine like winning more is it, is it would be an answer. But like, how do you know when you have it right? Like, I'm sure there's a bunch of different factors, but how do you measure it? Yeah, it's it's difficult, right? In a... In a oligopoly, so right, there's three different modes of competitive uh, or comp- competition environment, right? There's there's sort of pure commodity, right? I'm selling steel, gold, whatever it might be. There's you know the the monopoly case, and then everyone else is in an oligopoly, right? There's not functionally there's not an exact op- optimal price for an oligopoly situation, which is where most people are in. So thinking like you're going to find this magic optimal is, I think, a mistake. The way I tend to think about it, because folks tend to not think about these type of things unless they're broken, is what can we watch to see if it's broken, right? So 
Are you meeting your overall goals, your KPIs? Is pricing getting in the way of those goals? You know, do we have a effective price that maximize we feel maximizes our long-term profitability? In terms of metrics, looking at things like discounting percent will help us inform if our pricing is too high or too low. Discounting consistency, so we could do analysis on deals to see, you know, a, something like a regression model where uh, all things being equal, we make all things being equal with the, with a model, right? Between account size, you know, the amount they purchased, uh, the sales rep, the geography, right? Do we see consistent price bands among our users, right? To or among our accounts to see that okay, we're our price realization it makes sense. You know, looking at things like your gross and net retention, right? Are you able to is does your customer success team feel capable in helping drive business results because you've given them a path to you know upsell customers that's not just like did you add any new employees this month because we can increase the number of seats right that puts the customer success folks in a, a poor position where they don't really you know they're maybe tied to gross a number and they don't really have the capability to do so so those are the type of things I'd be looking at. I mean, more in depth, you, you could do uh, win-loss analysis, uh, churn customer retention analysis to help you kind of figure out what the root causes of things are. Um, you know, what things I look at when I think about like win-loss is you know, having win-loss codes is great, but it's way too easy for a prospect to tell you that price was the issue. So you tend to see that reflected much more frequently when you look at like win loss codes on their face than when you actually go you know interview those prospects hey what were the things that you were looking at what did you end up choosing why did you make that decision um especially in b2b price tends to fall you know somewhere in the like third to seventh most important dimension in a b2b sale it's very different than b2c for example so those are some of the ideas i had i feel like the bell just rang and i am exiting class with my mind racing and a lot going on in my head I learned a ton um, from this. Um, I, I hope you all did out there too. Dan, Where we'll put it all in, in the show notes, but if someone wants to reach out, I'm sure there are people actively working on pricing packaging at, for their brands. Where is the best place to find you? Yeah, I'm happy to connect with folks on LinkedIn at Dan Balkowski. Just let me know when you reach out that you heard me on the podcast so I could separate it from the rest of the LinkedIn spam. And then I try to demystify this world of pricing and packaging for everyone else so no one else has to, you can make all new mistakes. You don't have to make the same mistakes I did uh, on my blog at producttranquility.com. So happy and people could reach out to me through my website there. Awesome. Thank you so much and talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Brett. Have a blast. I hope you all had your notepad out and you were taking thorough notes. There's a lot of nuggets in there that Dan gave away to all of you. If you're thinking about pricing and packaging, if you're going to update yours, if you're a new startup and you have no idea what direction to go, hopefully you learned something in that episode. You all take care of yourself, everyone around you. We'll be back like we're always back. More Modern Day Marketer next week. 